Delaware has this tradition two days after election day, every election day, that politicians get together and bury a literal hatchet in Southern Delaware. There's this idea that Delaware is so small that you can get everybody in the room together and they can basically fix any problem. And Delaware has always been a state that sort of prides itself on that. That's the politics writer Paul Blessed talking about the Delaware way and how Joe Biden's early career in the state shaped his approach to politics. It's not just Joe Biden, you know, Tom Carper, another senator from Delaware, John Carnegie, the current governor and a former congressman, they've also built their careers on this idea that they can work across the aisle, whether that's with very, very conservative Democrats in the 70s, as Biden did, or Republicans working together to get things done. Today, we're talking about bipartisanship. When did bipartisanship become such an important value in American politics? And how did it take on such importance for Joe Biden? And in today's polarized world, does it have a future? I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything. Joe Biden ran for president making one promise that set him apart from his rivals for the Democratic nomination. He, and maybe only he, would be able to revive an increasingly endangered Washington tradition, bipartisanship. We need to revive the spirit of bipartisanship in this this country. I know that sounds bizarre in light of where we are. The spirit of being able to work with one another. When I say that, and I said that from the time I announced, I was told that maybe that was the way things used to work, Joe. You got a lot done before, Joe, but you can't do that anymore. Well, I'm here to tell you and say we can. I'm running There's been plenty of debate on how realistic Biden's promise was, whether we can. There's been a bit less discussion of why we should. Is bipartisanship an ideal to strive for? A tool to achieve particular political goals? A completely discredited concept? And what does a politician like Joe Biden actually mean when he refers to it? We wanted to figure out where Biden's particular attachment to bipartisanship came from. So we talked to Paul Blessed, who's written about Biden's background as a senator in Delaware. Paul suggested that it has a lot to do with Delaware's history as a Republican stronghold. When Joe Biden was first elected, Delaware was a pretty Republican state. It was one of the classic mid-Atlantic Northeast states that were you know, run mostly by moderate pro-business Republicans. Biden was one of the first Democrats elected to the Senate from Delaware in quite some time. And Delaware, I mean, we know it's a small state. I mean, it's, it's a tax haven, right? Like Delaware's are all these corporations incorporate themselves. Yes, it's definitely an onshore tax haven. Biden was known as the senator from MBNA. MBNA was for years a major issuer of credit cards. Uh, when he was, you know, a, a senator back in the 90s, you know, he authored a lot of legislation that was very friendly to financial interests. You know, credit card companies wrote in the legislation that you couldn't discharge student loans in bankruptcy. Banks loved him for that stuff. And that's sort of the unspoken thing about Delaware politics is that the thing that was uniting everybody wasn't really the sense of we can all get along because we were from a small state. It was that everybody in Delaware recognizes how important the financial industry is to Delaware and and being a corporate tax haven, essentially, it gives the state the funding it needs to be a functional state and, and state government. 
And just to make it really explicit, the idea here, and and I think this is true of a couple other eastern states in a way that's less true in the rest of the country, Mm -hmm. the idea was that for years, it sort of didn't really matter who the voters elected to put into power because there would be a sort of informal, moderate power-sharing agreement between all these broadly pro-business politicians on both sides of the aisle. So the sort of partisan gap in a state like Delaware really didn't matter as much as it might have otherwise, right? Right, yeah. It's changed in recent years, but yeah, that's sort of, you know, for Joe Biden's entire career, that's that's basically been the way that it's been. So when Joe Biden leaves Delaware and goes off to join the U.S. Senate, what kinds of things does he start doing that continue this Delaware way idea? So one of his his central issues once he got into the Senate became busing desegregation. And in Delaware, that was a very, very controversial issue. You know, Biden had never really been given much of a chance when he first ran for Senate. He was just a county councilman in the early 70s when he ran for Senate and, and beat an incumbent senator. And so Republicans very much made this a, a major issue in the first couple of years that he was in the Senate. And by the time 1975 and 1976 rolls around, he's working not just across the aisle with Republicans, he's, he's working with very conservative Democrats against busing desegregation, not just in Delaware, but in places like Florida. And then, in, you know, he gets into the 80s and he's working with Strom Thurmond on criminal justice legislation, basically the forerunner to the crime bill. So very early on, he sort of stakes out a claim. And, you know, there's a, a Philadelphia Inquirer profile that ran out of him in 1974, 1975, where he is talking about George Wallace as somebody that the Democrats should look to as, you know, somebody who, like, sort of tells it like it is. George Wallace was the former governor of Alabama and a committed segregationist. And he's not, you know, explicitly, you know, embracing George Wallace, but he's saying the Democrats need to get back to, like, common sense and, and mm-hmm. away from this this idea that, you know, liberals can save everybody. He literally calls himself one of the new liberals. I think there's another word for that. And that, that seems really important, too, because at the time in that very early 70s period, to be a, a person who sells yourself as bridging the gap, it's not strictly talking about I can work with Republicans. It was easier to work with certain Republicans at the time than, than it right. would have been yeah. to work with certain Democrats. It was not even just sort of a I can be bipartisan. It was that I can find the middle ground. I can figure out what I can work with in the other side, with the other side being incredibly conservative Southern Democrats. Yeah, exactly. The famous knock against him now is that he gave a eulogy at Strom Thurmond's funeral. And there was a reason for that. You know, he considered himself a friend of Strom Thurmond. He considered himself a friend of James Eastland, deeply, deeply conservative Mississippi Democrat, who pretty much as soon as he got into the Senate was a a staunch opponent of desegregation. You know, he aligned himself with these people on not just like fringe issues, on issues that related to segregation. I mean, the criminal justice reform bill was was bipartisan. Welfare reform was bipartisan. Deregulation of the financial system, all these things were bipartisan. And we all look at these things as horrible things now. They're pretty widely accepted as bad things. And yeah, you know, that that's sort of how he made a name for himself is, you know, one of the Republicans' favorite Democrats in the Senate for such a long time. He was willing to work with them and the ways in which he was willing to work with them were very bad. It's funny because all the examples you're giving of him working across the aisle are of these particularly low points in his career now, things that he would not like to have brought up. Right. But when we talk about bipartisanship, we always hear it spoken about as a virtue. 
It's, I'm just wondering how those two pieces fit together. I mean, it seems like whenever, at least in Joe Biden's career, bipartisanship has not produced results that in the long term you can be proud of. What would be an example of bipartisanship at its best? Well, the example that's often used is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is Julian Zelitzer, a professor of history at Princeton University. So this is a period where uh, bipartisanship happens a lot, not just because of good feeling, but in the 1960s, both political parties were internally divided in fundamental ways. Democrats divided between Southerners, uh, Dixiecrats, who were against most civil rights legislation and against unions, and Northerners, who were increasing in numbers and, and incredibly liberal on many of these issues. And Republicans were divided between the Midwesterners, who were staunch anti-government figures, and Northeasterners like Jacob Javits or Nelson Rockefeller, who could be pretty progressive. And so the Civil Rights Act of 64, this is the legislation that bans legal segregation and is really the first major product legislatively of the civil rights movement. Southerners filibuster it. And they're in the Senate, they're trying to kill the legislation by talking it to death. And ultimately, the only way it passes through the Senate is when some Republicans agree to work with the Johnson administration and liberals in the Democratic Party to end the filibuster. So Senator Everett Dirksen, who's the minority leader, uh, a famous figure, ultimately is crucial to passage of the legislation. So I think that's one bill and one moment we look to when the parties working together was pretty crucial. At the time, is that something that's discussed as bipartisan? or Because well, one thing we're trying to trace is the increasing use of the term and the use of this term, not just to describe the practice of people from different parties working together, but as an ideal in itself. Well, it wasn't an ideal, actually. I mean, the interesting thing about bipartisanship is in the 1950s and 60s, this phenomenon of parties working together was often discussed as a terrible thing in American politics. <laughs> so the reason is, Starting in 1938, you have a bipartisan coalition. It was called the Conservative Coalition in Congress. And that was Southern Democrats and Midwestern Republicans who teamed up. They controlled most of the major committees and they blocked everything. They blocked every major liberal piece of legislation to the great frustration of movement activists and to liberal politicians. So starting in the early 1950s, there's all this writing by political scientists essentially blasting bipartisanship, saying that uh, because the parties work this way and because this coalition controls everything, we get nothing done. And this is a constant theme through the early 70s. So many liberals in the 50s and 60s, they, they don't see it with great reverence bipartisanship. They see it as the problem. They're calling for more partisanship in American politics, parties that stand for something and that aren't willing to basically cut deals with the other side that end up killing major initiatives. That's funny then, because I think they got what they want, sort of. The parties polarized, as I think most of our listeners are, are well aware. It feels like, to me, bipartisanship as an ideal in and of itself coincides with that polarization. Well, they, they both happen at the same time. Something I recall from Sam Rosenfeld's book, The Polarizers, is that the critics of bipartisanship at the time thought that it was very confusing for the voter 
to vote Democrat or vote Republican <laughs> because you don't know there wasn't an ideologically coherent party. So it's hard if you're voting for Democratic president and then you vote for your local representative, they may not agree. Um, and you may be getting radically different things. So the idea that you can have two fairly, what we now have, two fairly well-defined parties where you sort of basically know what each one stands for is good. The problem you then get is they can't work together because they're very ideologically defined. Well, I think two things. I think that's correct. And what Sam writes about is this period in the 70s, really, uh, where a lot of activism centered on strengthening the parties. There was a lot of attention to the rules uh, and to the procedures to strengthen the party leaders over the committee leaders, to strengthen the national party over local party machines. When John F. Kennedy... Uh, is uh, elected in 1960, there is a lot of excitement. A lot of younger Americans think lots is going to happen. And then the civil rights movement is really accelerating and nothing happens because Kennedy until 63 is terrified of angering, not the Republicans, but his own wing of the party. And he's fearful of a backlash. And the reforms of the 70s achieve, like you said, a lot of, of what was wished for. And, and there is a careful what you wish for story, meaning there is a story about, yes, we get more polarization and the electorate also strengthens that. Southern strategy, for example, produces a Southern region that is Republican rather than Democratic, also eroding the basis of bipartisanship. And you have two parties that are far apart. And the story of polarization is that when that really happens, it's hard to find agreement on anything. It becomes more and more common as the parties get more and more divided. Asita Wanevu, a staff writer at The New Republic and a frequent guest on the show, has been looking into the early history of bipartisanship. And, and it, it tells you what the word is doing. It's establishing a value that is only meaningful when it is difficult for the two parties to reach an agreement, right? If it's the case that the, both parties are regularly coming to agreements, they're regularly passing policy together. You don't need a term to describe that thing. It's just sort of the way politics is working. But when it becomes difficult for the two parties to come together, then you have you know, the, the, the development of this term and this, this value where you say, okay, we're not here and this is where we need to go, right? You need to construct a different concept to, de to describe the ideal situation. So the phenomenon of people in different political factions, different parties coming together to do things or to solve problems. That's not a new thing, obviously. That's just politics. Talking about bipartisanship, what I mean is this sort of value system where you're saying to yourself, okay, one of the affirmative goals we have is bringing the two parties together, right? That's something we're intentionally setting out to do, not something that's going to be sort of a natural consequence of interests aligning. We're telling ourselves that good policies are policies in which the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have come together deliberately to reach a kind of agreement. And conversely, bad policies are policies that one side does on its own in a partisan way. That's what I mean by bipartisanship as a value system. And that whole concept, it's not something that extends very far back beyond World War II. So Osita explained that in its earliest usages, bipartisan was usually purely descriptive. It would refer to things like commissions that had members from both parties. It was only after the Second World War that it really came to mean Republicans and Democrats supporting the same policies, specifically in foreign policy. And one of the people who really advocates for this idea is a guy named Arthur Vandenberg, who becomes the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. In 1945, he delivers this speech in the Senate repudiating you know, his former isolationism and saying that 
United States post-war foreign policy has to be coming together in agreement. And in his letters and his commentary, you began seeing this word bipartisanship. But after World War II, you began seeing people refer to a bipartisan foreign policy, meaning this concept, that Republicans are going to come together and present a united front to establish the post-war order. And it's not until really the 1960s or thereabouts where you start seeing bipartisanship get extended into domestic policy areas as a positive value. And one of the first areas where you see this is civil rights. People are making the argument, well, the civil rights situation, race relations is a big enough crisis that we need to do exactly what we're doing in foreign policy. You need to put partisan politics aside and reach a kind of uh, unified agreement that's going to move us forward on this issue. And then it sort of proliferates through the decade so by you know the mid-1970s and into the 1980s. It's become established as a domestic policy value as well. But it, it ha- wasn't originally one. So we've talked about how the idea of bipartisanship developed during the middle part of the 20th century. After the break, we'll be back talking to Ed Miller about the rhetorical high point of the concept in the 1990s and how the idea took over the Democratic Party. So before the break, we were talking about where the term bipartisanship came from. We wanted to figure out what happened after it became established as a value and the kinds of problems it's created for the Democrats. So we talked to Ed Bermilla, who's working on a book about the Democratic Party. The word bipartisan, I think it implies a kind of meeting in the middle. It implies both sides come together and they find an equal compromise between them. How does bipartisanship play out in real negotiations? Well, the way I used to teach this stuff is to uh, tell students to imagine we're debating what to have for dinner. And if we both agree we're going to have pizza and then fight over the toppings, eventually come to a compromise, that's bipartisanship. We compromise. If one group of people wants pizza and the other group wants toxic waste, you know, we, we will debate and meet in the middle on what? What's the middle of those two points, right? You can't necessarily come to uh, a bipartisan agreement or a meeting in the middle on a lot of things. So bipartisanship in practice often means one party in the deal is getting a lot more of what they want than the other, and the other one just sort of yielded and agreed to it. And this is what Bill Clinton really brought to the table in the 1990s. The first two years of his presidency were not particularly successful. He had the failed attempt to reform health care. And we had NAFTA. NAFTA was extremely unpopular with the Democratic base. So Democrats get wiped out in 1994 in the Republican Revolution midterms. And Bill Clinton brings two Republican consultants, Dick Morris and Mark Penn, in to start advising him heavily. Mark Penn was the guy who once, swear to God, ran a nationwide poll about where Bill Clinton should go on vacation. And then they planned their vacation based on the results of the poll. They came up with this triangulation strategy. And this is where bipartisanship really worked its way into the Democratic psyche. The idea was take what the Republicans want, okay, so the crime bill, welfare reform, deficit reduction, take what the Republicans want, use that as your premise. So say, okay, we're having pizza, you know, and then do the negotiation around the edges. 
depict the Republicans as crazy, which is easy to do, was simple to do in the 1990s, just let Newt Gingrich talk for a while, and then Clinton could come in and be the adult and say, now, you guys are going too far, why don't you pull back a little bit? Instead of asking, wait, do we need deficit reduction? Why is that our goal? Clinton would simply say, well, instead of $400 million of deficit reduction, well, I talked them down to 300 It was a great deal, right? When you're looking for a version of what the other party wants that you've made some peripheral changes to, you can't really paint that as a victory if you come out and say, we got welfare reform, which is what the Republicans have been fighting for for 40 years. Hooray, you know? In order to spin that as a victory, you have to put your own stamp on it somehow. And that's when they started to really emphasize the value of bipartisanship and the value of getting something done. You know, the mm. air quotes, getting something done became an end goal. But we got something done. Isn't that the whole point? Well, no, it's not. How did it come to be that, that Democrats continued holding on to this idea of deal making as a goal in and of itself? Well, when the New Democrat movement became the dominant force in the party in the 1990s, my understanding of it is that they saw ideology as passé. Ideology is a function of an earlier political era, and we are willing to be ideologically flexible in order to achieve these poorly defined nebulous goals of making America better. And once you have punted on having a distinct ideology that you're backing and telling voters this is what we want to do right not just say we want america to be better we want america to be stronger we want everyone to have unity you know but a specific list of ideological goals things that you want to do when you're in office when you don't have that anymore you have to try to sell competence you know uh, the example i keep coming back to when i write about this is michael dukakis in 1988 saying this election isn't about ideology it's about who's more competent mm -hmm. it's not all politics is about ideology <laughs> elections especially are uh, about ideology you're admitting that you see the world the same way they do they're fundamentally correct ronald reagan was basically right we can't beat him so we're just going to kind of admit that his view of the of the future is what we're going to get. So obviously they tried this in the Clinton era, but then the next time we hear a lot about bipartisanship is in the Obama years. Why did they go back to it? Why did it why did this ideal get resurrected? <sighs> this this is something that really uh, it makes me sad to, to go back and read about it. Um, if you want to have a terrible evening, watch Obama's 2010 State of the Union speech. Cue it up on YouTube. That's when it just sort of became a religion. No figure uh, embodied the renewed promise of bipartisanship as Obama. Here's Julian Zelizer again. That's the speech he made in 2004 was one of the most articulate defenses of the concept, no red or blue America, United States of America. And he still believed it. And they bit his hand off. Every time he reached out, all they gave back was one or two votes uh, and then a lot of partisan heat. I saw an interview with Valerie Jarrett in 2019 talking about how her experience in the Obama White House prove to her that the next Democratic president's main goal should be to work with the Republicans. You know, <laughs> it's like, how did you get that conclusion from that? You were there for all of this. So there's an interview with her in 2016 where she says, 
even knowing what we know, looking back on it, that the Republicans were not going to negotiate in good faith and they were going to block everything we did anyway, we wouldn't have done anything differently because this is simply the right thing to do. Right. This is the way that smart people resolve a problem. They have a meeting, they bring everybody in and, you know, get ideas. Those are just baffling things for people to say. And we're not talking about some random person on Twitter. We get this from people who were up close in front row seats in the Obama White House. You know, we wouldn't have done it differently. This is just the right way to do things, even if though, you know, it's clear what what the the Republicans are going to do in response. They're not going to play nice. Do you think that's an idea that is inherently incompatible with the nature of politics? Or do you think that it's the particular opponent that Democrats face, the Republican Party, that makes it absurd? You've hit the nail on the head there in that what I think the problem is, is the Democrats have been very, very slow to come around to the realization that the Republicans simply are not going to play nice with them. And we're hearing it from Biden now. You know, uh, an interesting sort of parallel dialogue is to read Obama's memoir, which I don't recommend, but I'm, I'm for, for work-related reasons plowing through. And, you know, he's got an excuse for ev- everything. Everything we did was right. Here's why I did it. Here's the rationale. And at, in real time, you see people who worked in the Obama White House and Joe Biden now saying like, man, we have to not <laughs> do that again. You know, <laughs> they're in real time now going through the experience again. You know, not surprisingly, a lot of the Biden people now in the White House are Obama era veterans. And they were like, we learned our lesson from last time. We can't do this again. But I I want to see it before I start celebrating. One thing they're good at, it's coming out strong and then using the next couple of weeks to slowly shuffle backwards away from whatever it is they're promising, you know. Do you think it's had a longer term effect on the thinking in the Democratic Party and their goals? Has it made them wary of achieving the stated aims. <laughs> I mean, I'm being serious because you see them negotiating against themselves before they actually get to the table on so many issues. Oh, they're great at that. I think a lot of people think, you know, we voted for this politician because they said they were going to do this, but then they've already started haggling themselves down before they get to the negotiating table. The Democrats have so completely reoriented themselves away from economic populism and toward a base that is made up of highly educated, successful professionals, I don't think the party feels any real urgency to get done what it promised it will get done, as opposed to passing some version of what they promised would get done. Because for their base now their their donor base is is people who are pretty well off overall who have been successful generally in life and whether this bill passes in the way you know in the form they promised or they negotiate it down to something else those people's lives aren't really going to be different one way or the other the average person who was sending thousand dollar a week checks to the Amy McGrath campaign is not hurting for money. They don't care if it's a $1,400 check or a $2,000 check or no check at all. 
right? They don't care if Obamacare has a public option in it because they get insurance from their employer or they can afford it or whatever, right? So the lack of urgency from the base and the willingness of the Democratic base to accept whatever they do and rationalize it is actually, yeah, that was smart. It creates an environment where there's no real incentive for Democratic elected officials ever to dig in. As compared to the Republican elected officials who live in constant terror of their base primarying them if they're not crazy enough, uh, you have Democratic elected officials who generally have no fear of their base whatsoever. We're all obligated to vote for them, according to them. It's our moral obligation, because the Republicans are so bad, to come out and vote for the Democrats no matter what they do. Where's the pressure in that situation? What leverage can you apply to your elected officials once you've accepted the premise that you're morally obligated to vote for them no matter what? Among smart observers of, of Congress, that's sort of accepted now that that uh, Republicans are scared of their base and, and Democrats basically want to police their base. <laughs> what I find interesting is that, you know, in the debate over the COVID relief checks that you alluded to, it seemed like in the absence of good faith Republican negotiators, Democrats were beginning to get ready to negotiate amongst themselves mm-hmm. to to further means test them and reduce their generosity. I'm remembering one piece of reporting that said uh, Warnock and Ossoff were on this conference call, basically, and were like, you don't understand. We ran on $2,000 checks yeah. and we won. And that's why we have the majority. It felt like... Democrats were like were getting ready to negotiate themselves down just out of habit. Yep. And and these two senators were like, no, we actually made a promise that people believe and we should fulfill it. Do you think I'm right about that being a, a retort a sort of change in their approach? And and do you think that that is a sign that things might change going forward? Well, first of all, uh, Alex, I always think you're right. But more importantly, <laughs> I appreciate that from every guest. <laughs> more importantly here, I think that This is an amazing story for me to follow. I'm just loving this because there's no ambiguity there, nothing that needs to be explained. There's no formula. There's no calculator on my website. You know, it's straightforward. And somehow they've turned it into the fine print at the end of a local TV ad from a car dealer, you know, Uh, up to $2,000 for qualifying buyers, you know, this this kind of stuff. It sounds like fine print. And uh, but but the to your your point I don't think that um, the kind of Democratic supporter who doesn't have an urgent need for money right now, I don't think that kind of person understands what a bad argument it is to say we couldn't get all of the Democrats on board, right? They point to, well, we can't get rid of the filibuster. Manchin said no. And I understand that reality that they have people in the coalition who they can't convince to do these basic things. But what you're telling voters is, A, we can't defeat the other party because they're stronger than us. And B, when we sort of have a chance to, we can't get all of our people on board to agree that we want to do these good things. What are you telling voters there. Imagine a world in which Mitch McConnell ever goes on camera and says, we wanted to do that, but I'm sorry, guys, Chuck Schumer said no. 
He just <laughs> won't let us. Or, you know, I'm sorry, we lost Mitt Romney. I didn't even try to offer him anything or threaten him or anything. You know, he said no. I shrugged my shoulders and I walked away. Sorry, no tax cuts. You know, Mitch McConnell wouldn't do that in a million years. He'd be tarred and feathered by his own electorate. And I, I think that when there's a lack of urgency to get these outcomes, there is the problem where a, you know, an explanation is good enough. Well, we tried to do it. Cinema and Mansion said no. Exaggerated shrug, what could we do? You know? And I don't think that's a great message to deliver to voters. I, I don't think you want to say, well, if only some other things had happened, we could have won. So we've been talking about the history of the political system on the one hand. And it's clear bipartisanship wasn't really baked in from the beginning. And it doesn't entirely make sense in a system where politics is about contest and it's about trying to fight for what you want, trying to win. But I think if you talk to most people about the idea of bipartisanship, the idea of getting together with people who disagree with you and trying to find some kind of compromise... That just seems like the right thing to do. Like That just seems like the decent thing to do to most people. And I, I think that might be why it appeals to so many people. So on the one hand, you have this kind of personal code of conduct, the way that we expect other people, reasonable people to act in real life. But then on the other hand, you have the principles behind politics. So maybe there's a confusion there between personal and political behavior. We asked Osita what he thought. I mean, I, and, and I think there's also some complication there, too, because I think that you see very clear differences between the Republican and Democratic electorate on this question. So I was looking at polling around impeachment just the other day, where I think this was a CBS poll where they said the majority of Democrats see Republicans as ordinary political opponents. And you have a minority in the Democratic Party that sees Republicans as enemies. I think it's 50-something to 40-something. In the Republican Party, that's exactly reversed. 50-something 50, 50 majority of Republicans say that they view Democrats as political enemies. The minority sees them as uh, ordinary political opponents. Right. So there's this dispositional difference. Republicans are not fretting about this question. We've reached a point, obviously, where they don't see the Democratic electorate as legitimate, and they're willing to countenance you know, the overturning of election results and, and all this. But I do think for the majority of people, you're right that compromise feels intuitively correct. And I think that the challenge for progressives has to be saying to people, well, the Democratic coalition is in itself a coalition of different kinds of people who don't always agree on things. But they still constitute the majority of the public, right? That majority is, is a majority that's been reached through discussion and debate and deliberation. And it's not illegitimate just because you don't have Republicans also on board with the things the majority wants. That doesn't mean that you should see yourselves as thoughtless partisans just because you want health care and you want climate action and you want gun policy. All of those things are things the majority of the American people want and they want it because people have thought very carefully and, and had a lot of intensive, good faith discussions about these things. The idea of bipartisanship almost misrepresents the two parties as being monoliths, where there's complete agreement, and limits the idea of compromise to purely a compromise between those two parties, not compromise within the parties. Yeah, exactly. If you want to talk about unity, it should be considered an achievement to get Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Manchin to vote on the same thing. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. We need a word for that. <laughs> 
The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Kevin O'Connell is our audio engineer. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, something you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.